Today, you are part of an important conversation about our shared future. The Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues explores a diversity of viewpoints on international and public policy issues to promote understanding and encourage debate across the university and the state of Nebraska. Since its inception in 1988, hundreds of distinguished speakers have challenged and inspired us, making this forum one of the preeminent speaker series in higher education. It all started when Ian Jack Thompson imagined a forum on global issues that would increase Nebraskans' understanding of cultures and events from around the world. Jack's perspective was influenced by his travels, his role in helping to found the United Nations, and his work at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. As president of the Cooper Foundation in Lincoln, Jack pledged substantial funding to the forum, and the University of Nebraska and Leeds Center for Performing Arts agreed to co-sponsor. Later, Jack and his wife Katie created the Thompson Family Fund to support the forum and other programs. Today, major support is provided by the Cooper Foundation, Leeds Center for Performing Arts, and University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We hope this talk sparks an exciting conversation among you. And now, on with the show. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Mike Zeleny, and it's my honor to welcome you to tonight's Ian Thompson Forum on World Affair Issues. Thanks so much for sharing your evening with us. For more than a quarter century, the University and the Cooper Foundation have partnered with the Lead Center for Performing Arts to make this forum possible. Tonight, we are pleased to be joined by our co-sponsors, the University's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources, UNL's Environmental Studies Program, and the Platte River Recovery Implementation Program. As you know, this year, Thompson Forum speakers are addressing the theme of activism. It is my pleasure tonight to introduce to you a champion among activists. Bill McKibben is an author and an environmentalist, an environmentalist who has been called America's most important environmentalist. In 2013, he won the Gandhi Prize, and in 2014, Bill was awarded the Right Livelihood Prize. It's often referred to as the alternative Nobel. His book, The End of Nature, is regarded as the first book for a general audience regarding climate change. It's been translated into 24 languages, and since then, Bill has gone on to write more than a dozen books. Bill is the founder of 350.org, the first planet-wide grassroots climate change movement. It has organized more than 20,000 rallies around the world. He spearheaded resistance to the Keystone XL pipeline and launched the fast-growing fossil fuel divestment movement. After Bill's remarks this evening, you will have the opportunity to ask him questions. We'll use, do that via Twitter using the hashtag IanThompsonForum. Also, following his talk, Bill would be pleased to autograph books on the second floor lobby to the rear of the main hall. Ladies and gentlemen, the title of this evening's presentation is The Climate Fight at Its Peak. Now join me in giving a rousing Thompson Forum welcome to Bill McKibben. Wow. Thank you very much. Thank you enormously. What a pleasure. What a pleasure to get to be here. Thank you, Vice Chancellor. What a, um, 
what a good day. I'm so grateful to all that have brought me here, to Al Thompson and the Cooper Foundation and to Senior Vice Chancellor Green and to everybody else that I've been meeting. It's a gorgeous day in this beautiful town. And, you know, I've been walking around all day. We were out with lots of great activists at lunch out at uh, Holmes Park and the great beauty. And it's gorgeous days like this when I'm reminded that my main job in the world is just to kind of bum people out, you know. Um, and, and, and for that, I apologize, uh, Chancellor Green, I, you know, I, I'll do my best to uh, uh, pick things up um, as it goes along and not to end in as dismal a place as I'm going to start. But I am going to start in a dismal place for a moment because, um, well, because in order to understand the scale and the pace of the solutions that we need, and hence of the activism that's required, we have to have some shared sense of the scale of the problem that we face. And climate change, as it turns out, is almost certainly the greatest problem human beings have ever faced. It's a lot bigger than we thought it was not that long ago. I, I wrote the first book for a general audience about climate change. 20 Six years ago, in 1989, which I'm all too well aware was before many of you were born, and um, at the time, we knew we faced a great problem. We knew that when you burn coal and gas and oil and put carbon into the atmosphere, it's molecular structure trapped heat that would otherwise radiate back out to space. What we did not know was how hard and how fast it was going to bite. And the story of the last quarter century is it's bitten a lot harder and a lot faster than we thought. So far, human beings have raised the temperature of the planet about, about one degree Celsius. If you'd said to scientists 25 years ago that one degree Celsius would be enough to have melted most of the summer sea ice in the Arctic, they would have said, no, no, that's still... 75 or 100 years in the future. And if you told them it would be enough that, to have fundamentally destabilized the great ice sheets of the Antarctic to the point where the last spring we saw a bunch of studies indicating that their melt, the beginning of their melt anyway, is now fairly irreversible. Again, people would have said, no, those are stable on century time scales. If you'd said, you know, the oceans are going to be 30% more acidic. Well, no one would have even really known what you were talking about because it hadn't occurred to anyone a quarter century ago that we could alter fundamentally the chemistry of the Earth's oceans, but that's precisely what we've done as they absorb carbon from the atmosphere. And if you'd told people we were going to see already dramatic shifts in the way, well, the way that water moves around the planet, the... Um, the extremes of drought and flood that come when you have warmer temperatures and air that can hold more water vapor, again, people would not have expected the extremes that we're already capable of seeing. So this year is an important 
year. 2015 will be the warmest year that we have records for on this planet, and by a lot. At current pace, we're going to break last year's old record by a tenth of a degree globally, which given the size of this system and the inertia of a system this size is an incredible shift. July of this year was the warmest month ever measured on this planet. We've lost more acreage to wildfire on this continent this year than we ever have before. Um, you saw what happened two days ago in South Carolina. The um, meteorologists were referring to it as a more than, greater than a once in a thousand year rainfall event. Those are all, that's as great an event as we've ever charted and this was off those charts. That kind of thing happens now someplace around the world almost every day as we move into this new world. This is by far the biggest thing we've ever done, and the really dangerous part of it is we've barely gotten started. Um, we've raised the temperature one degree. On our current trends, uh, the kind of business as usual case, um, we'll raise the temperature another will raise temperature four to five degrees Celsius this century, eight, nine degrees um, um, Fahrenheit. Uh, that's not possible. I mean, if we do that, we can't have civilizations like the ones we're used to. Among other things, the work that goes on in a state like Nebraska, the work of raising the calories upon which the planet depends will become progressively more impossible. Y'all remember what 2012 was like here. That was the warmest year in American history, and it was a year in which we had widespread trouble raising the basic cereal crops of this continent in the richest farmland in the world. It was just too damn hot to do what we're used to doing. Computer modeling demonstrates that that's going to be the normal year by mid-century on current trends. We can't let that happen. The agronomists at the University of Washington and Stanford published a series of papers a couple of years ago demonstrating that from this point on, each degree increase in global average temperature should cut the world's grain yields by about 10%. All of you can do that math in your head. Understand what it would mean to live on a planet with 20 or 30% fewer calories. We can't let this happen. This is the biggest thing humans have done. We can't stop it. We've already taken the planet out of the Holocene, out of the 10,000-year period of benign climatic stability that coincided, not coincidentally, with the rise of human civilization. But we can't let it keep going. We have to rein it in as fast as we can, which brings us to the topic of this forum of which I'm so proud to be a part and so glad that you've selected a truly important topic and one that we don't talk about enough, this question of activism. Because, you see, I spent, and I was just talking with students about this a little while ago, I spent a lot of time getting this wrong for years. Because I'm a writer, and an academic, my 
sense of the world was that what we needed to do was keep proving to everybody how bad climate change would be, and if we did, if we won this argument, then we'd start to see action from Washington, from all the other world capitals. But you know what? We won the argument. We won it by 1995 or thereabouts. By then, the world scientists had come together to form a workable consensus about what was going on. We won the argument. We just kept losing the fight. And that's because the fight was not in the realm that writers and academics and things basically compete in. It wasn't an argument about reason and data and so on. It was a fight about power and money. The reason we haven't taken action on climate change is not because scientists haven't warned us, and it's not because economists haven't told us what we need to do, and it's not because we don't have any workable policies. The reason we haven't taken action is because the power of the fossil fuel industry has been sufficient to prevent action from being taken. This is the richest industry in the history of the planet. No hyperbole. Exxon's made more money each of the last four of the last five years, made more money than any company in the history of money. Okay? Um, um, and they use that money, they and everybody else, effectively to make sure that we don't take action. So, so eventually, I wised up long after other people had figured this out, many of them in this room. But it became clear to me, sometime around the failure of the last climate talks in Copenhagen in, um, six or seven years ago, that we needed to change course, that we needed to build power of our own, and since it wasn't going to come from money, it was going to have to come from someplace else, it was going to have to come from where, well, it's going to have to come from the currency of movements. Not the kind of currency that you have in bank vaults, but the kind of currency you have in the passion and spirit and creativity of people. The movements that have caused most of the important and useful changes that we know about in this country and in this world over the years. And this was going to be no exception. Now, having come to that conclusion, I then had no idea what to do next. Because I'm a writer, and what's more, I live in Vermont, which is the second smallest state in the Union, uh, and I live out in the woods, and what do I know about organizing? Nothing. In fact, I'm not even temperamentally suited for it. Uh, I, I'm a writer, which is to say, I'm an introvert. I mean, it's very pleasant to be here with you all, but really I'd just as soon be home in my room typing, you know. Um, um, that's what I like to do. Um, um, I'm not a, you know, a natural activist is someone like my dear friend Jane Klebb, who's here, you know. Um, um, uh, uh, and all the great people who work with her, who, to whom we owe a huge debt. But I didn't know how to do this. So, we did all sorts of things that seemed intuitively wrong. When we started this 
Operation350.org, we chose a very strange name, 350.org. The reason we chose it in the first place was because it might be the most important number on Earth. It's the amount of carbon you could safely have in the atmosphere, about 350 parts per million, a number we're already way north of. The atmospheric concentration of CO2 passed 400 parts per million this spring. It's going up about two parts per million per year. Okay? Um, so everybody said that would be a bad name because why would you choose a scientific data point to call yourself after? Um, and anyway, wasn't it really depressing anyhow since we were already past it? And I said no, I thought probably that it was good because it was like, well, it's, I see that there's a few people here my age, my vintage, you know. Um, you can go to the doctor, and the doctor can tell you, oh, if you keep eating like that, your cholesterol is going to get too high and you're going to have a problem. And when you hear that, you do nothing as a result. <laughs> but when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, ooh, your cholesterol is already too high. You're in that zone where people have heart attacks. In fact, you might already have had a small stroke yourself. Okay? That's the moment where you begin to say, Yes, and what pill should I take, you know, um, um, and, and get to work? And that was kind of... Also, we also thought that 350 would be a good name because we wanted to work globally. They don't call it global warming for nothing. And we thought that the biggest problem that we would have working globally in our naivete would be the fact that people around the world insisted on all speaking their own languages, and hence Arabic numerals would work better than words. You know? So that's why we called it that. When I say we, and this is the part I really want to emphasize, because here we are on a college campus talking about activism. When I say we, we started 350.org in 2008 with myself and seven undergraduates at college where I teach. Okay? So kids, just like kids here, same um, you know, test scores and same debt loads and same everything. Okay? Um, um, and we probably were lucky we were doing, none of us had any idea what we were doing because we didn't know how preposterous it was. We just figured, you know, there were seven students and there are seven continents, so each one should take one. Um, um, the guy that took the Antarctic also had to take the internet, okay? And, and, and we set to work. And our work was to find other people like ourselves around the world. Now, everywhere there's not someone who's an environmentalist, okay? But everywhere there's someone who's worried about hunger, about public health, about war and peace, about women's rights, about development, about all the things you can't have on a quick, degrading planet. So they were our natural allies. And we decided that job number one was simply to get all of them kind of on board to try and take this number, this idea, and drive it into the information bloodstream of the planet. So we asked everybody to go to work, to pick one day. We picked one day in the fall of 2009 and said, do something that day, okay? Um, and we didn't know how well this would work. We had no organization. We had no lists of names. We had no money, any of that stuff. Um, but you know, we got the sense it might work two days early. We told everybody to do this on a Saturday around the world. And on the Thursday, we got a phone call from our leader in Ethiopia. And she was a she, like most of the other people we worked with. And like many of them, I mean, she was a volunteer like all of us. And uh, she was 17 years old. 
And she said, she called. We were sitting there in our, around our one table in our one room with our laptops open, doing the last-minute work, and the satellite phone rung. And there she was in tears, and she said, the government took away our permit for Saturday. So we're marching today before they can stop us, and we are so sorry. We didn't want to blow it for everybody. We didn't want to, like, jump the gun. We didn't want to spoil it for people. We so wanted to do this the same day as everybody else. We're so sorry, and we have um, 15,000 people out in the street right now in Addis Ababa. Um, and so I said, wow, don't worry about the date too much, it's okay. Um, and for the next, you know, 72 hours, the pictures just came in from everywhere. Um, the next one, in fact, came from U.S. troops in Afghanistan. And we made a 350 with sandbags, we're parking our Humvee for the weekend and walking, okay? Um, um, there were... There were 5,200 demonstrations in 181 countries. CNN called it the most widespread day of political activity in the planet's history. And I'm going to show pictures here just really as a gift, especially to those great people. And boy, I had the great pleasure of having a lunch with a bunch of them who have led so many of these fights here in Nebraska and have done such incredible work. I just want to give you a sense of who your brothers and sisters in this fight are around the world. Um, it was beautiful to see. They don't look like always what we've been told environmentalists look like. You know, I've heard a million times that environmentalists are rich white people who've taken care of their other problems, and if you didn't know where your next meal was coming from, you wouldn't be an environmentalist. It just turns out that's nonsense. Most of the people that we worked with around the world are poor and black and brown and Asian and young because that's what most of the world is. And they do, you know, they're greatly creative and, um, you know, um, uh, um, this was the first time that there was big religious involvement in these kind of things. Um, there's the head of Muslim South Africa and of indigenous communities, and behind them the Anglican Archbishop at the head of a huge multi-faith march across Cape Town. This was, you know, six years before Pope Francis did his amazing work. Um, 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 that's our biggest, you know, most important evangelical liberal arts college in the country where Billy Graham went to school. I'd been to the Holy Land to do some organizing. Not an easy place to move around, but the Dead Sea is dropping very rapidly as temperatures warm, so people wanted to do something. They couldn't all get in the same place because there's too many barricades, but the Jordanian said, we'll make the big three on our shore. The Palestinian said, we'll do the five in Palestine. The Israeli said, we'll take care of the zero on our beach. It was a beautiful day. Um, there were 200 big demonstrations across China, which is a hard play. You know, one of them got broken up by the police, but most of them went off, which is good. China plays a big role here. China's doing interesting things. They've stopped, you know, their, their coal consumption went down last year in China. They're now opening uh, uh, renewable energy at a faster rate than anybody on the planet. Uh, those are our brothers and sisters in the Maldives, okay? Um, um, that's the Student Government Association, and they're meeting in the lagoon to make a point, which is that that nation, beautiful, paradise, white sand beaches, coconut palms, people living there for 5,000 straight years, 
The highest point in that nation is a meter and a half above sea level. That's a bad place to be on a rapidly warming planet. But they're fighting, okay? People fighting everywhere. This was the lead story on Google News for 36 hours, I think because the people taking part didn't look the way that environmentalist editors thought environmentalists would look. I mean, there's Yemen, which has got to be about the toughest country in the world right now. All the women in that circle are in full black burqa, okay? So to us, they don't look like members of the Sierra Club, maybe, but they're... Their hearts are in exactly the same place. They're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about the future. They're thinking about what comes next, um, about their children. Um, even, even in the... I mean, that's the oil sheikdom of Abu Dhabi. You can see some oil-rich sheikhs down front in their dishdashes. But somewhat smarter than, your, um, than some other oilmen because you see behind them the edge of the largest single solar array on planet Earth. These guys are committed to remaining rich no matter what, okay? Um, um, uh, three or four hundred pictures ended up in a file that was just marked 350 adorable, all right? And they were adorable, and, and they were also hard to look at. I look at the eyes of that girl in the middle, and I just think, you know, those girls are going to be refugees. And not because of anything they did, because of stuff we did, okay? Um, um, so we've kept doing this. We've done about, we think, about 20,000 rallies around the world over the last few years and in tough and interesting and beautiful places the world over, and we've loved doing it. It makes us extraordinarily happy to be part. And these, as I was saying today, these to the people, these are your brothers and sisters. These are who doing exactly the same work that people like at Bold Nebraska are doing, but it's Bold Somalia or Bold Philippines or, you know, whatever it is. And, and if we had enough time, I think what we'd do is just keep doing this kind of stuff, this kind of educational stuff forever. And in 50 years or 60 years, it would work. It would be enough. We did these huge, we've done these huge art projects. They call them the biggest art projects in history. And what a pleasure, by the way, to see the incredible creativity of uh, uh, the arts here. Um, uh, Chancellor Green and I were talking about the amazing work that, um, that Mike Forsberg's doing, this uh, Platt Basin Timeline project. And, um, that's, that's innovative, innovative artistic work of a kind that we see very rarely and so one should be so proud of the university for helping sponsor that kind of work. Um, um, we did these, these, we were doing things so big with so many people engaged that we needed satellites to take picture of it. That's a dry riverbed in Santa Fe and when the, the satellite came over about 3,000 people just whipped up blue blankets overhead to bring the river back to life for a minute, you know. If we had 60, 60 years, we'd just keep doing this, and eventually we'd get the kind of gradual, careful change that works best for humans and their institutions, and we'd get where we need to go. But we do not have 50 or 60 years. Basically, we needed to start 25 years ago if we were going to really lick this problem. And so we have to work with much greater speed than is comfortable. We need change that comes at a much more than evolutionary and gradual basis. We need urgent emergency change. And so, sooner than we wanted, we kind of switched, not switched, supplemented that kind of educational work with confrontational work. And 
one of the places we began um, was with the Keystone Pipeline. Okay. Um, now, people have been working on this issue of the tar sands for a while before 2011. Indigenous people up in Canada have been working on it for a long time because the tar sands were wrecking their land. If you want to see what real-world version of Mordor looks like, go on Google Earth and look at the tar sands of Alberta. It is disgusting. Um, and, of course, Nebraskans then and other people down the pipeline route got worried about its effect and, and started doing some of the best organizing that there's ever been, you know. Um, and then the, the rest of us decided that we should join in and help. And the first people I called were people from the Indigenous Environmental Network, and the second was Jane Kleb and said, is it all right if we jump in here and do some work too on this? Do you mind with a sort of larger climate movement? And they graciously did not say, oh, you should have been here three years ago. They said, sure, come along. And so I wrote the letter that asked people to come to Washington and get arrested in the winter, the summer of 2011. And indeed, a lot of people came, more than we expected. It turned into the largest civil disobedience action about anything in this country in 30 years. And 1,200 and some people went off to jail. Um, and that was enough to kind of get things going on a national and international scale. It started spreading all over the place. And, you know, then we followed the president everywhere he went. And then we surrounded the White House with tens of thousands of people. We had, uh, you know, shoulder to shoulder, five deep around that mile and a half perimeter. And that was all in the fall of 2011. And what do you know, Barack Obama decided that it would be a good idea to delay a decision on this pipeline until after the next election in 2012. And then we kept up the pressure with people like Jane and everybody else leading the way, Mary Pfeiffer, so many others, and what do you know, we decided to delay it again until after the next election. And what do you know, it's still delayed. And I'm a bad enough person that I gotta say, it gives me a kind of pleasure to know that TransCanada has big piles of pipe rusting in lots across the American Midwest. Um, because because the thing that they wanted to do was fundamentally irresponsible. They wanted to take the dirtiest oil on the continent, they wanted to put it into the atmosphere even though the planet was already heating up. Now here's the good news about what you all have done in Nebraska. It's not just that you've put a crimp in that pipeline, and it's not just that putting a crimp in that pipeline put a big crimp in the expansion of the tar sands. They've pulled tens of billions of dollars out of expansion plans up there. Those things would be good enough, reward enough for your labors. What's also happened is that the work that you help kick off has spread everywhere. There was a speech last spring by a big executive in the oil and gas industry to his peers, and he said, we have to somehow stop the keystoneization of projects all across the world. Okay? Um, 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 everywhere. We fight everywhere now because the oil industry had never been beaten really before or at least held to so far to a draw, you know. Uh, they'd won every fight they were in, but that gave people heart and people fight everywhere. 
You saw what happened when Shell wanted to go drill in the Arctic, and thousands of people in kayaks in the way, kayaktivists, we called them. Um, 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 and what do you know, Shell got its ship out finally to drill, but before the summer was even over, they announced that they were not going to be drilling up in the Arctic anymore. They said, for official purposes, oh, we didn't find enough oil. But as there, it became clear when journalists started talking off the record to people within the company, it wasn't that they didn't find enough oil, it's that they found way too much trouble. Um, um, you know, there were too many people in the way, and they just couldn't keep it going. Last month, indigenous people, and farmers and ranchers, and climate activists across Australia put an end to plans for the world's largest coal mine in the Galilee Basin. Um, everywhere! Everywhere, this kind of fight against fracking across the world. You know, now, not only my state of Vermont and neighboring New York have banned fracking, but so have France, and so has Scotland, and Wales, and many, many other places. Chevron just pulled out of Poland because there was too much opposition to their fracking wells. On the West Coast, the attempt to build big new coal ports is stymied at every turn. Uh, 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 it is a remarkable explosion of activism in every direction, and it owes an awful lot, an awful lot, to those um, pipeline fighters in Nebraska who helped it get all underway. And so, all honor to y'all. So that's good. We've gotten good at playing defense, and now we're trying to play a lot of offense, too. Okay? Um, and that's been fun as well. Three years ago, we launched this big divestment campaign. Okay? And the logic, and I... At the time, it was just pretty much me writing in Rolling Stone, and not even, you know, on the cover. Justin Bieber was on the cover. Um, <laughs> um, but the article that I wrote got shared very widely. They said it might have been the most shared article they ever had, and the reason was it had these new set of figures that had come from some financial analysts in the UK, and they'd added up how much carbon all the world's fossil fuel companies had in their reserves, in the coal and gas and oil they'd identified underground, but had told their shareholders or their regulators or Wall Street that they were going to dig up and burn. And when you add up all that carbon, it turns out to be about five times as much as the world's climate scientists say we could burn and have any chance of avoiding climate catastrophe. That is to say, if these companies follow their business plans, then the planet tanks. That is to say, these are no longer normal companies. They're rogue companies. And we have to figure out how to rewrite that script quickly, or else there's no drama left in this fight. We know how it ends. And so one of the ways that we wanted to go after them was the way that people did a generation ago when the subject was apartheid in South Africa, and when this divestment campaign was a very successful and, and, and powerful way to do things. Um, um, we started in the fall of 2012, or the winter of 2013, and the very first people to divest were a small college in the hinterlands of Maine, a place called Unity College, and they had a $13 million endowment, and man, did we celebrate when they divested. By last fall, the fall of 2014, we were doing better. Um, in fact, 
One day last September, uh, there were 400,000 people marching across New York in by far the biggest climate demonstration of all time. And that, that same day, uptown, that night uptown in New York, the Rockefeller family announced that they were divesting their holdings from fossil fuel industry. The, the, original, the original oil fortune, and they said it was no longer morally or financially sound to be doing investing in coal and gas and oil. They didn't want any part of it. And that brought the total of endowments that had divested to $50 billion, which seemed like a lot of money to us. But man, it has kept rolling. And three weeks ago, we had a press conference in New York. And now it's been joined, this divestment movement, by the universities of California and Washington and Hawaii, by the huge retirement funds in states like California, by the Sovereign Wealth Fund in Norway, which is the largest single pool of investment capital on Earth by Prince Charles and the Church of England and the United Church of Christ and the Unitarians, the World Council of Churches. It's been joined by Stanford and Oxford and Glasgow and Edinburgh and Sydney. The number now isn't 50 billion. The number as of a couple of weeks ago was $2.6 trillion um, divesting from fossil fuel. There was a story just this afternoon in the business press talking about how hard now that was hitting coal companies and how hard it was making it for them to raise new capital to do their work. And that's good news. Um, good news because our job is to hold these guys in place for a little while longer to keep them from expanding the fossil fuel industry. Because if we can hold them in place for a little while longer, there's a pincers movement coming in from the other side. And that pincers movement is led by the engineers who have done their job with extraordinary vigor. The price of a solar panel has fallen 80% in the last six years, okay? In much of the world, in much of the world, the cheapest way now to generate electricity is with the sun and with that gonna just keep happening because when you think about it, you know, power from the sun isn't really even a fuel the way that oil or coal is. I mean, you have to go out and dig those things up and every time you burn some, there's a little bit less left. And uh, when you're burning solar energy, what you're really using is technology, not fuel. And the, the point of technology is it gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over time, just the way cell phones did. So it's beautiful and exciting now to see the possibilities. If we got to work like the Germans, who by far the biggest adopters of this stuff, there were days this summer when the Germans generated 80% of their power from the sun. In Germany, you know, not in Florida, in Germany. Um, you guys know about wind power, you know how cheap and that's gotten and how fast and how efficient. These things are possible now. And if we can just hold back the power of the fossil fuel industry a little while longer, then they've got a shot. Now, it's not a fair fight, not in any way. Um, um, fossil fuel industry has endless money and they spend it. I, I do not say that at all with exaggeration. You guys know who the Koch brothers are. They, they, the two of them taken together are the richest human being on our planet, okay? And they've announced they're going to spend $900 million on the next federal election. 
That's more money than the Republicans or the Democrats spent on the last federal election. Koch brothers, party of two. Okay? Um, that's what we fight against, but that's what activism is about. It's what it allows us to try and do. I have no doubt how this story comes out. I know where the momentum lies. That's a set of billboards that the fossil fuel industry put up a couple of years ago. Okay? Um, that's sort of how desperate they've gotten. Uh, that's one of, their, one of their front groups, the Heartland Institute, and they put up billboards with serial killers, Charles Manson, other people, and they all said, I still believe in global warming, do you? Now, this is not a um, powerful, logical argument. I mean, <laughs> it's like having a picture of Hitler and it says, I believe in gravity, do you? You know, um, 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 but on emotional terms, the point was clear. It was to equate climate scientists with serial killers, you know? We were very glad that that same day at 3.50 around the world, we'd organized um, uh, uh, people everywhere just to show the kind of human face of climate change. We called it Connect the Dots. It was by coincidence the same day. But there were 3,000 events around the world, and they were everywhere, underwater on the disappearing coral reefs in the Pacific and the drying up cobble drought everywhere, sea level rise. Some places it's not quite as horrible, you know, but bad enough, um, you know, those are the, that's in Siberia, where we now routinely see forest fires four and five degrees of latitude north where we ever used to see them because it's gotten so hot and dry. You know, those are people who have to leave their homes already because the sea level is rising. Top red balloon is where the level of the Dead Sea was 40 years ago. Um, um, drought all over the place, and where it's not drought, it's just the opposite. Those people are in the part of Pakistan that saw the greatest flood since Noah. Uh, 2010, um, the Indus River, so much rain that the Indus River swelled to the point where it covered a quarter of the country. 20 million people forced from their homes. What's the population of Nebraska? many Nebraskas that had to evacuate, okay? And if you look at them, you get some sense that perhaps they were not a main cause of the problem that we face, all right? Same thing just in every direction, all around the world. Um, that was one of the smallest demonstrations that day, but it stuck in my mind just because of what the signs those kids were holding. Your actions affect me, which is true. More people died in Haiti from Hurricane Sandy than in New York. There's still a cholera outbreak underway in its wake. Your actions affect me, but not the other way around. There's nothing that people in Haiti can do beyond appeal to our conscience to make much difference. They can't use less fossil fuel. They hardly use any. They can't go protest outside the White House or even the Nebraska legislature or the governor's mansion. Jane, what did you tell me? 5.30 next Wednesday, not tomorrow, but next Wednesday, uh, a demonstration outside the governor's mansion, yes, uh, on climate stuff. Um, can't do that, you know, there's nobody with much power. The, the biggest pot of money in Haiti is doubtless smaller than the endowment of the smallest university in America, you know. Um, um, so they depend on us to take that kind of action. And increasingly we are taking that kind of action. There's this resistance in every corner 
to the kind of work, that, and, and in big numbers now, 400,000 people showing up, and there'll be more than that in the streets in Paris in December, you know. Um, um, since we're talking about action, activism, let me just finish these pictures with a couple of pictures that were my favorite, maybe, activist event of all, of all that we've done. And these are our friends, our colleagues at 350 in the Pacific. And these are on 10 or so island nations that probably aren't going to exist at the end of the century. Vanuatu, Tuvalu, countries that are so low to the water that they may just disappear. But they, as they say, we are not drowning, we are fighting. And they made these traditional canoes in place after place last summer. And while we were all marching in New York, they took those canoes and took them to Newcastle in Australia, which is the biggest coal port in the world. And they used them for a day to block the biggest ore ships on the planet um, to keep them from getting out of the harbor. And it was a beautiful scene. Maybe just leave that picture up. Do not go back to me standing here because it freaks me out too much. Um, 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 that's what I just want to end by talking about, about what solidarity really means as we, you know, go into this biggest crisis we've ever faced. And one of the things that's great about this room tonight is its diversity, um, in age especially, is there's people all across the spectrum. Um, well, since I've been thinking about the I was thinking all afternoon about those first arrests and things, that civil disobedience in Washington. Let me say just two things that we did during that civil disobedience that stuck in my mind. There's plenty of other things that Jane and others could talk about from then, but two things that stuck in my mind as kind of interesting lessons for me about activism. Okay? First thing we said was, um, you know what, when I wrote the letter I said, I don't think college kids should have to be the cannon fodder here. You know? Young people have done, as you could tell from these pictures, most of the leadership around the world. Okay? But in our economy and at our time and place, maybe the best thing for a 22-year-old you know, is not to have an arrest record on your resume. Um, one of the few unmixed blessings about growing older is past a certain point, what the hell are they going to do to you? you know? um, um, and a lesson, I might add, since we're in a university town, that goes triple for people who happen to have tenure also. Okay? Um, 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 it was a real pleasure to watch a lot of people with hair that looked more or less like mine arriving for that demonstration. We didn't ask people as they were getting arrested, how old are you, because that would be rude. But we did, cleverly I think, ask people, who was president when you were born? Okay? <laughs> and the two biggest cohorts came from the FDR and the Truman years. Okay? So that was really good. The last day there was a guy arrested, a sign around his neck that said, World War II vet handle with care. Okay? <laughs> he was so old that he'd been born during the Warren Harding administration, which was so long ago I'd forgotten there was a Warren Harding administration. <laughs> okay? So it was what was really good, really moving, 
was for all the young people who were there to see elders acting the way that really in a working culture elders should act, you know, to take that kind of responsibility and do that kind of thing, and it was really nice. The other thing that we told people was, if you're going to come get arrested, would you wear a necktie or dress, please? Okay. Now, I'm wearing a necktie tonight, but that's unusual for me. Very, I live in Vermont, where it is entirely possible to go a decade at a time without putting on a necktie, okay? Um, so it wasn't for because we wanted people in formal wear. It was because we wanted to send a visual message that's really important. Uh, it's the same message I've been trying to send all day. It's not the activists who are the radicals here. There's nothing radical about what I've been saying tonight at all. There's nothing radical about saying we want a planet that works more or less the way it worked for the last 10,000 years, for the only period for which we have records of human civilization, you know? That's not radical at all. As we were saying at lunch today, there's something deeply conservative about that, okay? Radicals work at all companies. If you are willing to get up in the morning, and make your great fortune by altering the chemical composition of the atmosphere after scientists have told you what it's going to do, after you've watched it melt the Arctic, if you're willing to keep doing that, then you're radical on a scale that we've never seen. You make 60s radicals look like pikers, you know? Um, um, these are the most radical things that human beings have ever done. And our job is to figure out how to slow them down. And, and, and stop them, to check that radicalism with the kind of moderation and common sense that have always been the important province of, of well, of this country. Um, I told you before that I'm not at heart an organizer, which is true. If I was, then I would just get you all wound up by all these beautiful pictures and tell you we're going to win and enlist you all and go on. But since I'm a writer at heart, it is my job also mostly to be honest, you know. And the honest truth is, we don't know if we're going to win. Um, we're making great progress now as a movement in some of the ways I've described, but we waited an awful long time to get started. And the physics of climate change produce a momentum that's very difficult. Um, and the power of the other side remains enormous. Um, um, and we're not going to stop global warming. It's too late for that. Um, but it's not too late, perhaps, to keep it from getting entirely out of control. The best science indicates we have a narrow window that's closing, but that we can still do it if we act with urgency and boldness and, and conviction and courage. Um, I don't know if we're going to win, but I can absolutely guarantee you that because I've been all over the world, that it's going to be a fight. There's really going to be a fight. People are really standing up everywhere. And what an honor it always is for me to be in those rooms with those people, and never more an honor than to be in a room with the people in Nebraska who've done way more than their share to get this all going. Thank you guys so much.
Thank you all. You're too kind. Thank you all. Thank you. At this time, Bill will take questions from the audience. You may submit questions on cards provided to the ushers. Please kindly raise your hand so that, to get their attention. Or you may use the uh, questions via Twitter using the hashtag Ian Thompson Forum. Let's get started. Can you tell us, Bill, where did your passion for, act, for environmental activism come from? How did it all start? Well, as I say, I was started this as a writer. And so I was... Um, Part of it was simply that, uh, as a young man in my uh, late 20s, I thought this was the biggest story that there had ever been. Um, this, I mean, I, I was, I'd written, I may have a better way to say that, let me back up. I wrote a long piece for The New Yorker when I was 25, maybe. I was a staff writer at The New Yorker writing Talk of the Town. That was my first job out of college. And I wrote a long piece for The New Yorker, and it was about where everything in my apartment came from. I traced, you know, the, it was down in Brazil because Con Ed was getting oil from there. And I was in the Grand Canyon because they were getting uranium for the nuclear reactor. And I was up in the Arctic because there was hydropower. And I was up in the water system. And the effect of it was to take, was to remind me of how physical a place the world was. You know, the American suburbs where I've grown up is a kind of machine for making you not notice the world in a way, you know. Everything's kind of hidden. Um, um, and, and New York even more so. Manhattan seems to be a place that can manufacture money out of thin air, you know. But uh, that sense of how physical it was set me up well to be reading the very early science on climate change. And what also set me up well was to have read in those years, as a young man, some of the great American writers on these themes, um, Gary Snyder, and Ed Abbey, and above all, Wendell Berry, the great Kentucky farmer and essayist. And that work echoed in my head as I was writing The End of Nature. So at the beginning, it was very much as a writer. Um, later, it was a sense of, um, well, sometime about... 12, 10 years ago, I went off to Bangladesh on a reporting trip. And Bangladesh is one of those places that's not going to fare well from climate change. It's a river delta, and the Bay of Bengal is rising enough that it's already pushing salt water into farmlands, and the great glaciers of the Himalayas are drying up that water the Brahmaputra. And, but while I was there, they were having not that chronic, those chronic problems, they were having an acute problem, a, a great outbreak of dengue fever, a mosquito-borne disease that's spreading like wildfire, their first big outbreak ever. And, uh, you know, I was spending a lot of time in the slums, so eventually I got bit by the wrong mosquito and got it myself. I was as sick as I've ever been, but I didn't die. A lot of people did die because they were weak and undernourished and things going in. And I remember just looking at the you know, lines of people in cots shivering from this tropical disease and thinking, damn, this is really unfair. There were 180 million people in Bangladesh, but when the UN tries to calculate how much carbon each nation on Earth emits, Bangladesh, those 180 million people are essentially a rounding error. You can hardly even measure it. Whereas in this country, the 4% of the world's population that lives here has contributed the vast plurality of the carbon that's currently in the atmosphere. So when I came home from that trip, I think there was, may have been something that kind of 
kicked off in me and just said, time to be a little more active here. Thanks very much. Given that this evening's pre-lecture talk was delivered by a Minister of Environmental Sustainability and your recent popular articles on Pope Francis and his encyclical, what role do you feel religious leaders have in this fight? Well, now, this is, you know, I'm not fully equipped to, I mean, the highest I ever rose in the Methodist hierarchy was Sunday school teacher. Um, and, and that in the very, very rural church where I live, where the only qualification really is on Christmas Eve, can you turn a fourth grader into a shepherd with a tea towel, you know? Um, 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 and I can. Um, 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 but I've long wanted to see and tried to help this rise of a kind of religious environmental movement. And now it's really coming. It took a long time. At first, 25 years ago, liberal churches weren't interested because uh, the real issues were war and hunger and we'd get to the environment after that and conservative churches weren't interested because it was all a way station on the road to paganism and you know um, now pretty much everybody's beginning to wise up to the fact that that care for creation is a central task the Pope's encyclical is I think crucial not only because it recognizes that but because it's a very thoroughgoing critique of how we live in this world. I highly recommend sitting down and spending the few hours it takes to read it. It's a remarkable document far beyond its focus on climate change. Um, um, I think what it represents is the consolidation of the kind of consensus in the world around us that we have to get to work. And I think it'll play a large and important role. All right, thanks, Bill. From our Twitter feed, there's a question. Is there a risk that offensive activism alienates the general population and that it's counterproductive? Sure, one can think of plenty of ways to alienate people, and I think it's one of the smartest reasons that, you know, one of the great insights that people like Dr. King and Gandhi had uh, was that there was a great power in um, nonviolent, resistance and civil disobedience in the unearned suffering that it produces. Uh, if I were an oil company, I'd be hiring people to throw rocks through windows, you know, because that's the quickest way, I think, to um, turn people off. Um, and that's why we work very hard. And I know people like Bold Nebraska and else work very hard to make people understand, as I said before, that um, um, that though we're determined, uh, we're not radical in that sense. Um, that this is uh, uh, that this is the work of people who see no no choice, but who see a great um, possibility here. All right, let's turn to national politics. Mm. What is your best prediction of what the presidential candidates who want to act to slow climate change will actually do and say before the 2016 election, and if elected? Well, good question. So I will confess that the last talk I gave was Saturday night, and it was in Boston, and I was got the pleasure of introducing my uh, uh, neighbor, uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, um, uh, it was great. There were, it was really fun. There were 26,000 people crammed in this room, and I got to be the guy who said, the next president of the United States. Bernie Sanders, it's good. Um, um, uh, look, 
I think that what's happening right now is that the existence of this movement and the existence of candidates like Sanders is kind of pushing the Democratic Party to be more direct in their, um, in their statements and actions. It was important to have Hillary Clinton, after five years of essentially supporting the Keystone Pipeline, come out last month and say she was against it. And to have her, um, and to have her do it again um, on Saturday Night Live last Saturday, you know, uh, was a useful thing. Um, so I think that that's sort of will continue for the next few months as the Democrats try to consolidate their base, you know, and do this. And then I think the interesting question will be how it plays out in the presidential, in the general election. In 2012, both. Barack Obama and Mitt Romney completely ignored it. They managed in the hottest year in American history to go through the whole campaign until Hurricane Sandy hit with like three days to go. They managed to go through the whole damn thing without even saying the words. It was like they had a tacit bargain that it wasn't useful for either of them, so they weren't going to say it. I think that the Democrats have decided and have a lot of polling and focus grouping and things to indicate that this is a big wedge issue now and that the Republicans have made a serious mistake in the extent to which they've kowtowed to the fossil fuel industry, and that they're now out of touch with large parts of the American electorate, and that it's going to be a hell of a hard thing to get elected pretending that physics doesn't exist, you know? Um, 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 that said, that said, I don't think for a minute that electing anyone, including Bernie Sanders, President of the United States, solves the problems that we face. Uh, it turned out that having elected Barack Obama, we then had to go and send thousands of people to jail outside his house to get him to do anything, okay? So the reason to elect a, a Democrat would be simply that you can then go to work on them, you know? Um, and that's what we will do. So in, in brief, are you confident a solution will emerge from Washington or, or is, is it easier to give up on Washington? No, I mean, look, the trouble with Washington is we're not going to get the action out of Congress that we need. That's pretty clear. In the relevant time period, it seems very hard to imagine a scenario um, uh, unless, there's, unless there's a lot of other districts that do what you guys did to Lee Terry last time around. Um, there's going to be, um, um, it's going to be very difficult to um, um, get any solution out of the GOP House, okay? That doesn't mean Washington doesn't have a role to play. It turns out that in these questions, the president has a large role to play by himself through executive action. If we elect a Democrat, I think that the demand is very clear that there be no more uh, exploration for fossil fuels on public lands uh, in this country, and that we um, um, do everything we can to jumpstart the quick, accelerated transition to, to renewable energy. Um, the next president will enter office with cheap renewable energy, the first president to do that, and it will be the real test as to whether they can take advantage of that or not. Um, but there's also a lot of work that has to go on in states and in across borders and uh, 
the years of waiting for Washington to lead on this are over. It's very clear the U.S. isn't going to be a leader now in climate stuff. The job now is to keep them from derailing the whole thing. Bill, how does global climate change affect national security? Uh, Admiral Locklear, the head of the U.S. Pacific Command, gave an interview last year where he said, you know, we're dealing with Korea, we're dealing with cyber attacks, we're dealing with terrorism. The thing we worry about the most is climate change. And the reason is its effect to destabilize everything. And I think the thing that scares the military planners the most is what happens when you have large number, large populations on the move around the world. That that's the kind of recipe for instability. So you can almost pick a region and see it going on. Uh, at the moment, the most tragic maybe, and we were talking about this earlier with students, maybe what's happening in the Middle East. There's a lot of academic work that makes it pretty clear that a major, a major, if not the major, um, predisposing factor to the dissolution of Syria was the worst drought in the history of the Fertile Crescent. Uh, a drought so deep that it drove more than a million farmers off their land and into the cities and contributed mightily to the instability of Syria, which the government in Damascus was unable to cope with. Hence the, you know, along with other causes, hence the dissolution of that government. There was a big headline in Time magazine two weeks ago about the stream of refugees into Europe saying, at some level, you should consider these people climate refugees. Now, I think that's going a little too far, actually, but I do think that that's exactly the image to have in your mind as you're imagining the future. Um, people on the move and with it. I mean, I was just talking about Bangladesh. Um, India's built a wall between it and Bangladesh, uh, modeled on our border fence with Mexico, you know. And it's because they know that as sea level rises, that's going to be the obvious place for people to be headed from Bangladesh. But it's not like there's any vacant real estate in India for people to go to. The same kind of thing all over the world. Um, it's going to be uh, tremendously destabilizing. Thanks, Bill. And a question from a member of our audience tonight here at the Lead Center. It is easy in Nebraska to oppose fossil fuel because we have relatively few jobs in that industry. How do you propose to employ in the short term the many thousands of Americans whose livelihood depends on the fossil fuel industry? Well, the good news, I guess, is, I mean, there's no easy answer to that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's no avoiding the fact that it's going to be dislocating for some people. Um, the good news, I guess, is that the transition to renewable energy is going to require an enormous number of Americans working to make it happen. Uh, there's probably no larger transition economically that we've ever undergone, at least in as short a period of time as we need to do this. And those are good jobs, and they're jobs that automatically are here at home. I mean, no one's going to put their house on a boat and send it to China in order to get it insulated or a solar panel put on the roof or something. Um, that's work that has to be done here. We do need a just transition for people who are, uh, you know, who are, say, coal miners, and if we're not going to burn coal anymore. It's not, they should not have to bear the brunt of that themselves. 
The good news is their numbers are not so enormous that it's impossible. There are already three times as many people working in the solar field as mining coal in this country. So these should not be insurmountable challenges, but there are things that require, as I say, a kind of real effort at a just transition. Thanks, Bill. Also from a member joining us here at the Lead Center tonight, what is the role of agricult industrial agriculture regarding climate change? So uh, agriculture is a contributor to climate change. It's not the biggest contributor. Uh, uh, there have been people recently, I keep running into people who've come across statistics that agriculture contributes 51% of carbon emissions or things like that, and it's not correct. The, the FAO and the UN guess that it's someplace in the neighborhood, depending on how you calculate it, of about 18% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the world. And a fair amount of that, some of that is down to the deforestation uh, that happens as we create pasture land and uh, so on. And a fair amount of it's down to the methane that, uh, uh, that cattle produce. And a fair amount of it's down to how we raise uh, some of our cattle in this world, uh, feedlot, agriculture, and the like. Um, and that probably needs to change, like other things need to change. I, we were talking about this beforehand. One of the interesting fields of research right now by agronomists is trying to understand how it could change. And there's at least some evidence that um, smaller scale rotational grazing on uh, grassland, if done in very concentrated ways that require more labor, frankly, than we use at the moment, um, um, would produce not just fewer emissions, but produce healthy soil so healthy that it would sequester a fair amount of carbon out of the atmosphere. Now, the result of that would be that the price of a um, of, uh, you know, pound of beef would go up if it was raised in the right way. I know that it's probably heresy to say it in Nebraska, but in fact, that would probably be a good thing all around too because we actually eat a fair amount more of this stuff than we should. Um, um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, um, so, the, um, the role of agriculture is important. And I was saying before that I, I do think it's a beautiful moment in certain ways for agriculture in this country. And, uh, you know, for the first time in 150 years, the number of farms in America is going up instead of down. I teach at a college, and it's not an ag school, it doesn't have an ag school, but there are an increasing number of young people who are graduating and going into agriculture, and each time that happens, it makes me enormously happy um, because they're f figuring out new approaches. The thing that's going to make their lives so difficult is if we let the weather continue to get completely out of control. If you think about agriculture, the one I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's obviously hard work and very hard work and requires endless amount of judgment and you have to make an endless number of decisions and you better make a high percentage of them correctly or else you're out of business and things. But the one thing that over long periods of time, not year to year, but decade to decade, was 
you could count on was the basic physical stability of the planet. You know, if your grandfather could raise corn someplace, it was a good bet that his great granddaughter would be able to do the same thing. That's now a sucker's bet. As we change the world's climate, we're making、uh, that very, very difficult. So, as I said before, I think the biggest single reason, maybe, that we need to Maybe the two biggest reasons that we need to rein in climate change very quickly are its effect on sea level for urban people, most of whom live on coasts, and its effect on、um, our ability to grow food、uh, for those people who are engaged in that work,、um, um, and hopefully more of them all the time. Now, turning a little more directly to activism, where do you see the most opportunity for change in the coming year? Well, the coming year is going to be interesting. We're going to go to Paris for these big climate talks. They're going to come out better than the ones in Copenhagen six years ago. The reason they're going to come out better, above all, is that we now have a big, widespread movement around the world. The ones in Copenhagen ended with no agreement whatsoever. It was the biggest diplomatic debacle since Munich. But no one really got in trouble for it. You know, no world leader, Barack Obama, could come home and it wasn't a big. He didn't get pay a big price. Now there's enough of a movement that he would pay a big price, and he and other world leaders know that they have to reach some kind of agreement. We also know that the agreement that they reach will be、um, less than we need. For one thing, it'll be entirely voluntary. It's just a series of pledges that are being made. We're pretty clear what the pledges are going to be.、Uh, They'll put us in a path. I told you before that we were headed for four or five degrees Celsius temperature increase. If all goes well,、um, after Paris, we'll be on a road to three or three and a half degrees of temperature increase Celsius, which is still way, way too much. The world set a target, an absolute red line of two degrees Celsius. Even that's way too much. If one degree melts the Arctic, we. We're idiots to find out what two degrees will do, but we're probably going to come close to finding out, even if we do everything right.、Um, so it's remarkably important that we not let Paris you know, these negotiations be a kind of endpoint. They're not the game; they're the scoreboard. And afterwards, we keep moving fast ahead. Next April, we've already set a big day of action around the world. At all these sort of huge carbon deposits, what, we, what I've been calling the kind of carbon bombs on the planet, places like the tar sands,、um, uh, like the coal country of the Powder River Basin, like、uh, these great coal deposits in Australia and Indonesia, like the Arctic、uh, and its oil and gas, and we're going to be in those places、uh, and in the places that connect to them, like the route of the Keystone Pipeline. Reminding people that we can't develop this stuff. So the hope is that there'll be a lot of activism. That Paris won't.、Uh, Paris will simply charge people up to be yet more engaged. All right, Bill. Before we take our final question, I would like to remind everyone that Bill will be、uh, have, participating in a book sale and book signing in the、uh, rear lobby of the the main hall here. I also would like to remind you to mark your calendars for the next Ian Thompson Forum events. Featuring Westmore on January 19th and Cheryl Wudun on February 2nd, both here at the Leeds Center for Performing Arts. Bill, before we ask our last question, on behalf of everyone, I would like to salute you for your passion and your activism.
you can tell that everyone agrees we're so glad you left the comfort of your home to come to Nebraska, and we hope you'll visit again. The last question we would like you to address is, what would be the one thing you would have everyone in this room do to help you with this fight if you could? Well, that's a good question. You know, for years, what the environmental movement told people to do was to take individual actions. Change your light bulb, um, so on. Those are important things. You should change your light bulbs. You should put up solar panels. You should get a bicycle. You should eat lower on the food chain. You know, you know these sort of things, and I bet that many people here are doing them. But having done them all myself, I always try to remind myself that those are not what's going to stop climate change. This is a structural and systemic problem rooted in things like the fact that the fossil fuel industry has been able to keep a price from being attached to carbon and the damage that it does. Structural and systemic problems don't yield to individual action. They require us to not be individuals all the time. They require us to come together to form movements. Um, 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 and that's what's required. So the one thing to do is to make sure that you're with other people. In operations like you have some good ones here, like Bold Nebraska, that bring people together and demonstrate the enormous power of that kind of unity. Um, um, activism, your topic here this year, is, is one of the most human one of the best manifestations of being a human being. Um, we are, in the end, social creatures. And for many reasons, the kind of American experiment with the kind of hyper-individualism, the sort of super-consumers that we've styled ourselves, is probably less satisfying than we've told ourselves that it is. One of the interesting things about um, activism, even for an introvert like me, is that there is a great deal of, um, I don't know if pleasure is the right word, but deep satisfaction to be had in working with other people towards a common end. And while on the one hand we're kind of unlucky to be alive at the moment when this huge challenge awaits us, on the other hand we're kind of lucky to have it. It's not as if other people in other times didn't have challenges. You know, our grandparents had to go fight fascism in Europe, and a lot of them died doing it. Um, you're not probably going to die fighting climate change, but it's the same opportunity for the same kind of commitment and solidarity, um, the same kind of connection, in fact, the deeper kind of connection, because you'll be joining hands with people, as you've seen, all over the planet, in every corner of the planet, in a fight for that planet and for its future. So thank you very Bill, much. thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Thank you all. Thank you.